welcome back. We are now on the Statues and Story segment of A Wonderful Patriotic Monday with Ed Vidal. This is WSQF 94.5. This is yours truly, Mac on the Rock. And welcome, Adam Levinson. How are you today for Statues and Stories? Good evening, everybody. I like that. Patriotic Monday. Patriotic Monday we are. That's definitely the, the case. If we can just not talk about attorneys, we can talk about patriotism. Go ahead, Adam. Go ahead. Defend yourself. You know, Ed Vidal, every time I say that, Ed's, you know, he brings down his great America, great cap, and I can't see his eyes, so I don't know what he's doing. But go ahead. Tell us about. Make America great. Make America great. Tell us about Rutger and Waddington. So, Manny, I think you inadvertently, or maybe you did it on purpose, perfectly set the stage when you talk about lawyers, because we're going to be talking tonight about what I consider to be one of the earliest and one of the most important cases in American legal history once we were our own country. And uh, before I get into the background of this case, Rutgers versus Waddington, that a lot of people have never heard of, but it is a very important case. I wanted to begin by saying that uh, the Statutes and Stories, which is my website, we come on at 7 o'clock to talk about American history, so I neither agree with nor disagree with when I talk about the website. The website is non-political, it's non-partisan, but it's very partisan when it comes to the old history of the colonial period and early American history. So that's a quick observation. And also I want to mention uh, for some of the listeners that the Hamilton exhibition at Nova Southeastern University is continuing until the middle of the month, and we still have two more speakers coming up. And can I mention real quick at the outset who the two remaining Sure, are? yes. Right. So we have a speaker on Tuesday night. This is a law professor, Tim Dixon. He's a history and a law professor, and he's speaking at NSU at the Cortia Gallery on Tuesday night, which is uh, tomorrow night yep. at 7 o'clock. And then we round out the exhibition with the president of the AHA Society, and everyone realizes who's listened to the show, the AHA Society is the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society. And I wanted to tell you, because it's a very interesting bio, the president of the AHA Society, his name is Rand Cholet, and let me give you an idea of some of the organizations that he he has spoken to over time because it's extremely extremely impressive and it, it tells you how Alexander Hamilton in this early American history appeals across the board to all kinds of historical groups. So I'll give you some idea. And by the way, they recently put a statue of Alexander Hamilton at the Coast Guard because Hamilton had created the Coast Guard. So I have his bio here, so let me give you some of the information. He speaks to national park sites because the AHA Society runs the Hamilton Grange. He's spoken to the Society of the Cincinnati, and I'll ask you guys later if you know what the Society of the Cincinnati is. George Washington. Uh, say that again? George Washington. That's right. So the Society of the Cincinnati was an organization established after the Revolutionary War by officers and the families of officers of the Continental Army. That's the that we could talk about where that name comes from. So he speaks before C-SPAN and before the Daughters of the American Revolution, the Museum of American Finance, Columbia University, Coast Guard Academy, etc., the Naval Academy. So that's who's going to be speaking on the 14th at 2 o'clock, which is a Sunday. So that's uh, things to look forward to. And I'm sure we'll be putting all kinds of links and videos about some of these talks. So that's the laying the groundwork yeah. for what we want to talk about. And all this can be uh, read on statutesandstories.com, correct? That's right. So statutesandstories.com is our history website. It's totally free, and people are welcome to go there and try to read some of these, whatever catches their interest. And your wife said that you created this website because you don't want to write a book? <laughs> or you just, come on, you're going to have to write a book. He's seen your experience writing a book, so... Yeah. Right, one, of, one of these days there may be a book, but uh, I have a lot more flexibility by blogging, and you can do things in real time, and you know, who knows. But you're right, maybe there will be a book one day. Yeah, I think so, because you can't let all these people that you are speaking so highly of outdo you. 
when you can outdo all of them together. That's what we think. Thank you very much, Manny. I appreciate that. So yeah. let me give everyone, and I like to do what I refer to as mind or thought experiments, as if we're doing physics and Albert Einstein. But I want you to go back in time to the 1780s, and so everyone understands what the background was. We fought the Revolutionary War, and it was tough. In many respects, it was a civil war, especially in certain areas like New York City and in Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. where the land changes hands between the, and let's call them what they are, the loyalists were those who supported the British. They were also called Tories, and you had the Patriots, and you guys are going to like this, the Patriots were referred to as the Whigs, Rebels, or the Republicans. So you have the Loyalists who are behind the British lines, and the Loyalists support the king, and they're loyal to the king. You have the Patriots, these are the George Washingtons and the Hamiltons and all the founding fathers and mothers who are the Whigs, the Rebels, the Patriots. But New York, as an example, was held by the British through November of 1783. So the war had basically been over in terms of active fighting since Yorktown, because the British surrendered at Yorktown. There were still skirmishes in various locations, but the war was basically over. But until the Treaty of Paris is signed, and that's maybe a whole separate conversation for another night, and took a lot of time to negotiate that up in Paris. The, the British controlled New York, and the Patriots controlled the, you know, the other areas where the British troops aren't, uh, aren't living and, uh, and defending. South Carolina is another example, where the British captured Columbia, South Carolina in 1780, and what would happen during the war is if the British control an area, they would confiscate the property of those who had fled because for various reasons, war is not fun, war is not pretty, and the Patriots would do the same thing. If you were a loyalist and you fled the surrounding area around New York City and you went to New York City to seek protection of the British, then the Patriots would seize your property and use it to support the, the war effort. Makes so sense. There's a lot of confiscation going on behind the scenes. And remember, the British controlled New York until evacuation day, which was November of 1783. So that's some of our background. And there was a very interesting book written by a professor friend of mine, Robert Watson, called The Ghost Ship of Brooklyn. So this is a book that came out in 2017, and it has some amazing statistics because he got into some of the primary sources, mm-hmm. which is what historians love to do, and I love to do on StatutesAndStories.com. So he looked to see the number of Americans who died as British captives, or British prisoners of war. And does anyone want to take a guess at how the British held American prisoners of war? Mm-hmm. And this is in the New York area, and I'll give you a hint. This is in the port area around New York City. Yeah. How would the British hold American prisoners? There were slave ships on the East River. Lots exactly. of them. So the ghost ship of Brooklyn is one of many British ships. These are trans- transport ships. The British would put the American soldiers in the boat. They'd nail down the top of the ship. They'd uh, every so often put food in through a porthole. And uh, th- this was a way of killing American soldiers. And very few would wind up surviving over right. a long period of time with the diseased, rat-infested ships. And the number is 10,000 captured American pl- prisoners died of disease and malnutrition on these British ships in the East River. And that's documented in this book, yeah. Ghost Ship of Brooklyn. Well, you got to realize that at the Battle of Brooklyn, uh, some American units surrendered, and what George Washington saw through a field glass, they were bayoneted in place. So these are the guys that were lucky and got put in ships, and then they died there. War is not fun, and this is going to be the background about how you have retaliation and confiscation after the war. So the Americans are dying in the British ships, the American soldiers, and then Washington would threaten, if you're going to treat our troops this way, you know, we too can play this game. So when the war ends and eventually the British evacuate New York City, there's a lot of mixed feelings, a lot of animosity, and you have about 100 American, 100,000 rather, loyalists wind up, wind up fleeing the colonies. They go to Canada, they go back to England, and we can talk about later some of the famous American. 
Americans who do flee. For example, Benjamin Franklin's son, who was the governor of New Jersey, yep. he skedaddles, and there are other famous Americans who were loyalists and get out of town. So, so imagine, we're now 1783, there's a lot of hostility, and what the New York legislature winds up doing is passing a series of laws. And these laws have different names, but they fall under three titles. One is called the Trespass Act, one is the Citation Act, and one is the Forfeiture Act. And what do you think the New York Forfeiture Act does, which was adopted in the 1780s? Want to take a guess? The New York Forfeiture Act? Got me there. Loyalists loyalists, uh, forfeited their property. Exactly. And a lot of these questions, Manny, are going to be legal-related questions, so I'm apologizing you to in advance. Oh, no. Manny is a really good scholar of law. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go to the bathroom at that moment. Okay, go ahead. So New York passes these laws, and New York is saying, you know what, if you if you were a loyalist, we're going to forfeit your property. They also passed the Citation Act, which makes it difficult for a patriot, uh, to turn it around, it makes it easier for a patriot to sue and to collect money, and makes it difficult for a loyalist to sue and to collect money from American debtors, and most importantly for this conversation today, the Trespass Act. And what does the Trespass Act of 1783 say? And here I'm going to give you some names. Well, if the British come back to... To, to reclaim their stuff, they're, they're now being accused of trespassing. There you go, Manny, exactly. So if I'm, and they give you the names, Elizabeth Rutgers is a very sympathetic American widow. Her father, her, father, her, her husband dies in the war, and before the war, they owned a brewery in New York City, in the Maiden Lane area in New York City. So after the war, she comes back to say, wait a second, this new law that was passed, this trespass act says that the people who are using my brewery and living in my building, they owe me the rent that I should have been receiving because that was my property, which they've been using when I was out of town and when I when we fled New York City. So that is what the Trespass Act does. It allows Americans, these are the Patriots, the Republicans, the uh, the, the you know the rebels, uh, to get reimbursed for damage to their property, but also to get rent that would have been owned or owed from people living in their property. So she brings that lawsuit. And I'm not going to tell you who the lawyer is in this case, but we're going to get to who the lawyer is. Ed Vidal. No. So we're not going to identify him yet. But uh, she has a very good lawyer representing her. So the lawyer who represents this widow whose family owned this brewery has all kinds of good arguments because this is the new law that was adopted. And his name, the lawyer, is uh, Egbert Benson. Today you don't have many names, Egbert. But let me tell you a little bit about Egbert Benson. So he was the state attorney general from New York, and it's nice to have the state attorney general representing you. And back in the day, that was allowed because he didn't get paid much to be the official president or whatever these other positions were the state attorney general or the chief justice, they often had separate law practices. So here, even though he's the attorney general of New York, he's representing this very sympathetic widow. And uh, he had also served in the legislature in adopting the Trespass Act. So a lawyer who wrote the or I don't know if he wrote it himself, but he was involved with adopting the law, is now suing to represent this widow who comes back into New York City once the British leave. So that's now painted for you in the background. And I, I should also point out that I don't make up these stories. I have to borrow from historians and the primary sources and the legal documents and the diaries. So let me, I always like to mention the names of the lawyers and the, the, in this case, lawyers and historians. No, never mind. It takes too long. (laughs) But the the books that I'm using here are Rutgers v. V. Waddington, which is talking about the end of the War of Independence, and that's by a professor named Peter Charles Hoffer, and we're also going to be using a book by Kate Brown, and I'm not going to give the name of the book because it'll give too much away, but it's about the development of American law by Kate Brown. So what do these books talk about? And 
The issue is what happens in this lawsuit, testing the Trespass Act. So a 27-year-old lawyer, and you'll figure out who he is, winds up representing the family, which is the Waddington family. And the Waddington family, they had this, I'm sorry, they moved into the brewery. So the Waddington family, they're Tories, so they're pro-British, they're, they're loyalists, and you know, people will take different sides in a, in a war. It doesn't mean they're right or wrong, but they were represented or they, they, they supported the king. They were loyal to the king, so they are Tories. And uh, before they moved into this brewery, the British troops had gone through there and, and basically removed anything of value, so they looted it. So all that's left is a building, and it was in bad shape. The brewery was all taken out. So the Waddington family moves into the brewery, and they spend... Uh, today, the, the numbers don't really mean anything to us, but several hundred pounds to refurbish and to rebuild the brewery and to get it up and running. And once the British sort of take over the city completely, they are required to pay rent to the British. So the Waddington family invests substantial sums of money to buy up and build up, not buy up, but to build and to refurbish the brewery. And then they pay rent every month or every however often the British collect. But on a regular basis, they are paying rent for this brewery. The war is over. The British flee New York. They evacuate. And now you have the widow, which is Mrs. Rutgers, bringing the lawsuit for the rent that she thinks she's owed and she would be owed under the Trespass Act. Now, Miss Rutgers is a loyalist or she's a patriot? Patriot. She's a patriot. She's a patriot and she's a widow, so the juries are going to be very sympathetic to her. Absolutely. Because you know, this was her property she wants it back, and the law says that there was a trespass, that they were using her brewery, even though they invested money in the brewery and got it running again. It was, it was basically vacant and, and uh, in disrepair. So the Rutgers family is, is the one that's suing to get the rent, and the Waddington family is saying, wait a second, we paid the rent to the British, and by the way, two days before the British evacuated, there were mysterious fires that broke out all across New York City, and the brewery burnt down. So even if we wanted to pay you. The brewery is now in, in shambles and has been destroyed, and we already paid the rent to the British, which we were doing for the several years from 17, I don't have the exact dates, but uh, from 1776 all the way to 1783, the British controlled New York City. So how does this case resolve itself, and why are we going to spend an hour talking about this case, Rutgers versus Waddington? So a young 27-year-old newly minted lawyer who basically had just gotten his law degree or passed the bar, and I'm going to joke with you about uh, the, the total New York bar, you want to take a, a wild guess, and then whatever number you have, cut it in half, and then cut it in half again. But how many lawyers do you think there were in the New York bar in 1784? 24. Two. Say that again? 24. I say two. 24 is a good guess. What was the other one, Manny? What did you two. Say? Two? <laughs> right. So, yeah. So the, the quick answer is... Uh, the answer is about 40. There were 40 lawyers, imagine, in 40. New York City that were practicing law at the time. And I don't even know how many of them were practicing, but that was the New York bar, 40 attorneys in New York City. So how does the case... I think there were just 38 guys who said they were attorneys. Mm. Uh-huh. Well, there was no uh, formal bar exam then. Yeah, there's no one to say, you read you're not the an law. attorney. Yeah, if you were Kinda hired... like today. Okay, go ahead. So... Here we go with, with the arguments that are going to be made in the case. So what this young lawyer does is he points to, and remember, there is a law that was passed by the New York legislature, which is the Trespass Act, saying that Mrs. Rutgers is entitled to the rent for the years that someone else was living in her property. So what's the defense that this young attorney raises? So he comes up with a brilliant novel defense, which thankfully today we now recognize as a as a 
principle in American law. So he points to the law of nations, and we'll talk about what the law of nations was and how that applies. And a subset of the law of nations is the law of war. He also points to the New York Constitution, which incorporates the English common law. He points to the Treaty of Paris, this brand new treaty that was adopted, which provides that you can't retaliate against the British because the war is over and uh, we made a treaty and the treaty protects the rights of the British and it protects the rights of the loyalists. Yeah, the reconciliation. And the treaty is all about reconciliation, and we can go into detail about the specifics of the treaty, but he's going to point to these areas of law. And I'm going to point out, and this is somewhat legalistic, but Ed would agree, I think, that you had a lot of bodies of law that are in play here. You mm -hmm. have colonial state law, you have this common law, you have British law, you have international law, and then also you have the law of nature, because a lot of the founding fathers, and today a lot of people talk about inalienable rights, or life, liberty, property, etc. These are natural rights. We could look at John Locke and Montesquieu. So there are all kinds of law and all kinds of sources for law, and this is before we had the U.S. Constitution, and we'll talk about what the underlying law was, the federal law. So. What is the argument? And this attorney makes the following argument, that under the law of war, under the New York's Constitution, and under the Treaty of Paris, the, there's a hierarchy of the trespass law is subsumed or it is lower, and you judge do not have to follow the trespass law because the higher law is what's going to protect the, the, the British or the loyalists. And I'll point out to you that the, the trespass law was a retroactive law. And I think everybody, even if you're sympathetic to the widow, have to realize that if you're going to pass a law which is going to have financial consequences, as a general rule, you make a law prospective, not retroactive. And that was one of the problems with the Trespass Act. So how does the case play itself out? And the quick answer is that, um, let me get into some of the numbers for you. So the family of the widow, so this is the Rutgers family, was seeking 8,000 pounds. And the decision by the judge, and the, the court actually is a New York mayoral court, so it's, it's the, I think the mayor and a handful of other judges serve in this capacity. So what does the judge decide? And one of the reasons why I happen to like this case is because if people come to the Hamilton exhibit, we have one of the books that is cited as authority, because we talk about international law, that's cited as authority in the briefs that were submitted in this, in this decision for the judge. And the, the book that you guys are familiar with, because we show it at the Hamilton exhibit at NSU, is The Law of War and Peace by Hugo Grotius, and this is a, uh, a Dutch father of international law, and there, there were established rules about the, how you conduct yourself and how you should conduct yourself during, during wartime. So that's part of what's being cited in the case. And uh, the quick answer is the judge, and I'm going to read you from some of the decision. So Chief Judge James Duane, D-U-A-N-E, and what he says, I want to find out if the, what, what, what is one of the biggest, and we may have talked about this on another evening, what is the, one of the biggest, not grocery stores, but drug stores in New York City? Yes, Duane Reed. It's the, Duane Reed. A, I'm, I want to know whether or not Duane Reed. Sure. Yes, there's another big one. Yeah. Whether or not Duane Reed. Go ahead. Yeah, no, there's a, there are two uh, there are two streets down in uh, Wall Street, Duane Street and Reed Street. And that's, I'm sure that's where they come from. And Duane is definitely this guy. That. If you find out, let me know. Yep. So what does the chief judge, Judge James Duane, decide for the court? He declares that the state constitution embodied the common law. 
think about that for a second, that the state constitution, even though it doesn't say it, embodies the common law, and the common law recognizes the law of nations, so he's connecting the dots, and more importantly, he declares, because these are arguments that were being made by the lawyer in the case, he argues that under the Articles of Confederation, that constitutes fundamental law. So the fundamental law, which is the Articles of Confederation, supersedes any inconsistent law of the state, of the New York state. So that's so really other side. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's really uh, the, the the concept of federal supremacy over the state law. That's exactly right. So this is the idea, and we're not telling who the lawyer is, but this is the idea. Of, you're exactly right. Federal supremacy, and under federal supremacy, you have judicial review that a court can decide that uh, because this law is subsumed or is subservient to the the higher authority, which is constitutional law, the state law can be found unconstitutional. But this had never been argued before in, in, in the United States. If this was argued so long ago, how come that doesn't apply today in, the sanctuary, in the sanctuary city well, laws? Well, it does. It does. The so why, is, why isn't the federal government... The, the sanctuary states and cities are in defiance of the federal government, just well, like the... Well, you got to deny them federal funds then. Or something, or attack, or send the, uh, the send, army in. Yeah, okay. All right, go ahead. Continue, yes. Adam. This is so a, up with one of you mentioned this that this is the concept of judicial review and federal supremacy and under judicial review people may remember the name of the case uh, this is from 1803 but uh, you, you want to mention when we come Marbury to, versus Madison Madison versus Marbury so this is in 1803 the John Marshall court recognizes this concept of judicial review but remember we're not in 1807 we're in 1784 so this is the idea of judicial review being rolled out when the British have just left New York at 1784 now in this important yep. case, Rutgers versus Waddington. So what's the other side of the coin? So the attorney and, and the, the, the judge has to make sense of and distinguish and figure out a way to avoid the other doctrine, which is referred to as the Blackstonian theory of legislative supremacy. Because who is supreme? Is a New York legislature supreme? And under Blackstone, the legislature is supreme. But under this idea that we're trying to develop in this case of Rutgers versus Waddington, these new Articles of Confederation and the Treaty of Paris is supreme. So how do you resolve that tension, that conflict? So Duane declares that the legislature, which is supreme, had not intended to revoke the law of nations. So this is the two-step that judges and lawyers will do, and points out that the court has to expound the statute to give effect to the legislature's intent, because the legislature could not have intended to pass a statute which violates the fundamental law and the concepts of the, of the treaty, etc. So it's a very important case, and uh, the ultimate result was, anyone want to take a guess? So the argument was that $8,000 or 8,000 pounds of rent was due under the Trespass Act, and also not just for the rent, but for the destruction of the property, yeah. etc., and the use of the property and the proceeds from the property. So 8000 was owed pounds. How much do you think the court winds up awarding? One, one dollar. Fair question. So let me give you a little bit more details. So the British started collecting rent, let's say, a year in. So they take over the, the city of New York, uh, and then it takes them a while before they actually start collecting rent. So let's say they start collecting rent, and I don't know the specifics, but maybe this is in uh, 1777. So the British take New York City 1776, but they don't start charging rent until 1777. So what do you think the decision is? I, I think Rutger gets, uh, gets her rent. So that's partially correct. So the decision was that because we're not going to enforce the Trespass Act, because it is 
invalid, if you will, under the supreme law of the law of nations and under the supreme law of the Articles of Confederation. We're only going to give her rent for the year before the Waddington family started paying rent to the British. Because under the law of nations, paying the rent to the British satisfies your obligation, and the state law can't come in and give you retroactively mm -hmm. another obligation. So that's the result in the case. But I want to give you some quotes. So she wins, but she loses. Well, she wins, won one they year. wind up reaching the settlement, and she gets $800 instead of $8,000. And a lot of cases wind up getting resolved. You know, once the decision comes down, instead of appealing it, they, they reach a settlement. And the this decision is so controversial. Let me give you an idea of the reaction to this decision. So the court is siding and supporting the, the loyalist and everyone in New York City or the patriots, you know, how dare you support a loyalist? Because we have this law, and the legislature is supreme. New York legislature gets to decide, not judges. So what winds up happening? The, the reaction is pretty fierce, and angry crowds and, and pamphlets are written about how this is horrific, that uh, what this decision has done, and the legislature wasn't happy about it either. They've made the law subsur subservient or subversive to good order, the decision, and that if a court can, quote, dispense with state law, the legislature becomes useless. So this is what they're arguing. This is the consequence, the re reaction to this decision. And the legislature, what's the point of the legislature if a court, and this is why judicial review is highly controversial in some cases, so this is why you've got to be careful if you're a court overturning a law, because the law is the will of the people. But can the will of the people come up against and violate a constitutional priority or a constitutional right. So this is where these doctrines were being laid out. And uh, I'll also point out to you that there were pamphlets that were being written which accused the court of assuming and exercising a power to set aside an act of the state, which they disagreed with. And there were also pamphlets that were being written. And as it turns out, the lawyer who wins in the case uh, writes some pamphlets, and he writes under the, the pseudonym, because back then you know that lots of... Uh, People would write the Founding Fathers under these Roman and Greek names. So he writes under the name Phosikon, and I like to point out that I am horrible pronouncing these Latin names. But uh, what is the argument in the Phosikon briefs and the Phosikon essays? Uh, the argument is that if we're going to be, and this now gets to, do you want to take a guess at who Phosikon was? Who was the lawyer who defended the Waddington family against the widow, uh, Mrs. Rutgers? Alexander Hamilton? There you go. 27-year-old Alexander Hamilton comes up with these ideas of judicial review almost 20 years before <laughs> Madison versus, uh, you know, before Marbury, the, versus, Marbury Madison. versus Madison. And in the Fosicon essays, and there are several of them, he makes all kinds of arguments. And I want to quote these concepts, which are very important today. And before I quote him, I want to quote some of my favorite historians. Ron Chernow, in the, in the biography of Hamilton, gives some explanation about how Hamilton thought, and I agree, that America's character would be defined, this is a quote from Chernow, our character would be defined as a nation by how we treated vanquished enemies, and he wanted to graduate from bitter wanton grievances to a forgiving posture of peace. Same question after the Civil War. Are you going to put aside some of these differences and build the country together, or are you going to be sniping at each other and uh, undermine economic activity and growth? Here's another quote from Chernow. That this is this is Chernow describing Hamilton's thinking that the discriminatory discriminatory treatment of Tories quote sensitized Hamilton to the extraordinary danger of allowing state laws to supersede national treaties and making manifest the need to have a constitution that would be the supreme law of the land. So Hamilton is getting ahead of everybody and realizing that we need a strong federal government that can protect minority rights. And in this context, what is a minority right? A minority is the 
British loyalists who are still taxpayers and they are still humans, and uh, the treaty is now in place and the war is over. So let me quote yeah. you from some of the, the essays, the Fosicon essays. So this is a quote by Hamilton. He writes that as a Revolutionary War veteran, so you know he takes a difficult political position. He's defending the loyalists. So as a veteran, he says, he has, quote, too deep a share in the common exertions of this revolution to be willing to see its fruits blasted by violence of rash and unprincipled men without at least protesting their designs. So he invokes Plutarch, because Plutarch was the historian and philosopher who wrote about Phocicon. Phocicon is an Athenian soldier. So he invokes Plutarch, and Plutarch's lives writes about all these different Greeks and Athenians. So he invokes the, the name of Phocicon, and he assails, quote, the malignant precedent that would be set if the legislature were permitted to exile an entire class of citizens without trials or hearings. And I think most people will agree, you need to have due process. In such event, quote, no man can be safe, nor know when he may be an innocent victim of prevailing factions. And what's a faction? We don't use the word anymore, but what's a faction? A special interest. Special interests in political parties. So just because one political party comes in or one special interest comes in, you can't throw out another group and uh, confiscate or take away or, or, or discriminate against them. So he says the name of liberty applied to such a government would be a mockery of common sense. So that's a quote from the Fosicon essay written by Alexander Hamilton, and he writes several of these essays to try to convince the people of New York, listen, give the loyalists a break. The war is over. Here's another quote. The world has its eye on America. Hamilton says that America, has, if we act wisely, have a historic opportunity to counter the skeptics of democracy and defeat despots everywhere by protecting individual rights. So Hamilton gets it. You've got to look out for individual rights because today you may be in the majority, but tomorrow you may be in the minority. So that's a little bit about the Fosicon essays. And so uh, tell us why aren't we applying this today? Uh, why is it that there are so many cases where an individual right has a right... And it's just being steamrolled over by the consensus of the majority. It's in happening in, in so many cases, just about on every subject matter. Why? I mean, are, are, is, is the Waddington case ever used in modern law practice or no? So the concepts and principles from the case of judicial review are applied all the time, and that gets into a political conversation about do you want judges to be activist judges? But I would argue that if a judge is defending the Constitution, it's not an activist judge. They're doing their job. Uh, but that gets into a big discussion. And I will leave that discussion for, for hours five to seven. Right. <laughs> seven to eight. I, try, I, I yeah. tried. Yeah. But, you know, let me, let me tell you something, about Adam, about Blackstone. And I think this is one of the distinctions that the American Revolution and the American legal system has done in, in contrast to England. Blackstone wrote about the laws of England and Wales, and he did not face a federal system. So here we have the beginning of our federal system, the, the very first year. And I think the, the, the argument was that the laws contracted by Congress, international law uh, and other treaties, were supreme to the state statutes. And that's a, a principle that's continued today, and that was picked up by the U.S. Constitution and, 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 and going forward. The other principle is what Blackstone called legislative supremacy. And it, only the United States, not England, has developed the, the idea of judicial review where the courts can look at the statutes and say this doesn't comply with the Constitution. Now, that, you know, that, that politically that can go either way. 
But judicial review is not very common in England. And in fact, between elections, parliament with the king, but parliament is a dictatorship. And that is part of the reason why we have more freedom in, Eng in the U.S. We don't have that parliamentary dictatorship. So those two factors are part of what creates more space for freedom in America. There's no legislative dictatorship, and there's a federal system of the federal and the state laws, and they have to, to work together. So that's a, that, that case really illustrates a lot of the differences of the new American system. I agree with my learned counsel. Uh, I completely agree. But then Manny's talking about uh, you know, nullification. That's a problem that started yes. with South Carolina, and they were nullifying the federal uh, tariffs. And that was wrong when it was done in the 1830s, John C. Calhoun in South Carolina. But today, sanctuary cities and the sanctuary state like uh, California is totally unconstitutional. It's contrary to the rule of law. And that's why you know, uh, we, we are in a real constitutional crisis. Because if you're, you're saying we will not enforce these federal laws in our state or in our cities, that's, that's the same thing that uh, North, uh, South Carolina was saying. And that's how they started the, the Civil War. They, you know, they fired on Fort Sumter, but yeah. they were saying, you know, we don't want to be part of this union and we're going to withdraw. And it's a, the nullification, uh, and this is something we could talk with. Well, you also, had, you also had that in the issue of medical marijuana. The, the federal law still says that marijuana right. is that's illegal. that's another one. That's another one. And, yeah, you got to reconcile And some states are recognized. I mean, Colorado, how are you going to take yeah, and the all those taxes not, yeah, Colorado the, has earned? Because, you know, government earns now. No, no, no. <laughs> when they tax marijuana, they're earning it because some states... You can tax in other states. You can't tax yeah. marijuana. No, they, they need to work out. In the case of marijuana, I'm in favor of legalizing it, so I'm not a big uh, you know, proponent. But yeah, I think we have to resolve the, the conflict between how, the state and federal law. Look how quiet statues and stories Adam Well, is. no, Adam's smoking his weed back in the... <laughs> yeah. He's... But no, but the whole sanctuary city is a, is a real... It's an open issue. And uh, I don't know how it's going to be resolved, but it's, a, it's definitely an open issue, uh, especially California. Wow. So then, uh, Alex, what becomes of uh, Hamilton after this after this trial? Uh, it gets a lot of uh, obviously a lot of press, and is it starting to affect other situations where loyalists want money from Brit British uh, subjects or the other way around? Manny, let me come back to that question because I want to go into a lot of detail there, and I want to respond uh, a little bit back and forth on nullification. So uh, one of the issues that I very much disagree, and I think you'll agree with me about this, one of the things I disagree with Jefferson and Madison, as much as I think they are constitutional heroes and uh, some of my favorite founding fathers, uh, in the time period when, uh, and it's referred to, and we talk about this on statutesandstories.com on the website, go to the website and read about, and you mentioned in the 1830s, the nullification crisis in South Carolina and Calhoun. But uh, the Kentucky passes a resolution uh, which calls for nullification of federal law because they disagreed with some of the things the Federalists were doing. They disagreed with the Alien and Sedition Acts, and we also have blog posts about the Alien and Sedition Acts. In fact, we've got copies of them at the NSU exhibit that we have for Hamilton. So why is Kentucky passing you know, this? 
tiny state at the time. There weren't that many people in Kentucky. Why is it passing these nullification laws? And the answer is that Kentucky had been part of Virginia, and Madison has a lot of control, and Jefferson have a lot of control because Kentucky broke away, and it was all agreed. It wasn't a battle. This is part of how they were dividing up the, the territory. So Kentucky is a continuation of Virginia, and because Madison and Jefferson have a lot of influence, that's why Kentucky did what Madison and, and Jefferson wanted. And they passed these nullification laws, which said we are not going to follow federal laws because we disagree with them. And I agree with you that if you have a nullification situation, um, you basically can have anarchy because different states can be doing whatever they want. And that's what was happening under the Articles of Confederation. The states were taxing each other. The states were uh, not agreeing to follow and protect the citizen of one state as a citizen of the entire country. So there were, there were all kinds of problems under the Articles of Confederation. And we can talk one night about that 1830s time period where we almost had a mini-civil war where Jefferson was threatening to, not Jefferson, where Jackson, Andrew Jackson was threatening to invade South Carolina, but they worked it out. And that's maybe another hour we can talk about the nullification crisis. So now let's go back to 1783, 1784. Let's go back to Manny's question. What does Hamilton do after he wins this case and they, they work out that they'll wind up paying 800 pounds instead of 8,000 pounds? What happens? So the quick answer is that the books that I mentioned earlier, so I, I think I mentioned the name of one of them, but to give you the names of both of them, the one book is called Alexander Hamilton and the Development of American Law by and the professor's name is Kate Elizabeth Brown. So that's one of the books. And the other book we mentioned earlier, and I gave the title, uh, but the other book is called Rutgers versus Waddington, Alexander Hamilton, The End of the War for Independence. It's a big name. And The Origins of Judicial Review. So, so for the second book, it talks about this time period, not just the case, but what happens after Hamilton wins the case. And the answer is to his political detriment, because he was not popular for doing it. And part of the reason he did it is he's trying to vindicate the principle that we need to have the rule of law. The law is that we can't discriminate against the, when I say the law, the Treaty of Paris and the federal law that was agreed to by the, the federal government under the Articles is that we have to respect the rights of loyalists. We can't discriminate against them. So New York State can't violate that higher fundamental law is what the judge called it in the case. And uh, it is not popular for him to take these positions, but he does develop a practice of representing, and you're going to get a kick out of this, he winds up handling about 40 or 50 of these cases representing British loyalists. And Hamilton writes articles in the paper, the Fosicon articles, but uh, there's another side of all these debates that are taking place. And there's a famous, and one of these days I, I want to read it myself in, in the original copy, but uh, there's a response to Fosicon uh, from under the, under the name Minter. So instead of writing and using a, a British, or I'm sorry, instead of using a, uh, a Greek name or a Roman name, which is usually what Hamilton would do, you had a, a New Yorker who supported the rebels writing under the name Minter and challenging and attacking this decision and saying that we should be allowed to confiscate because the British confiscated property and then they got in their boats and they left New York. So there are various arguments that Minter makes. And in one of the books that I mentioned to you, the, uh, the argument is being made that we can try to put together the dots and infer who Mentor was, who was disagreeing with Fosicon. So now I want you to think, and uh, you can take a guess on this, who do you think the rival is who is taking the opposite position from Hamilton writing as Fosicon in the Mentor essays, which are a response to the Fosicon essays? Take a wild guess. Aaron Burr? Aaron Burr. Of course, his nemesis. The, the speculation is that uh, Mentor may have been Aaron Burr, so this tells you how the two of them, Burr and Hamilton, have been rivals for years. Yes. It's, how do you like that? Yes, absolutely. And every, every walk of life, uh, Burr could never handle 
that the younger Hamilton succeeded his notions. So what else does Hamilton do after the war? He represents the Loyalists. He also runs for and gets elected in the New York legislature, and he tries to get a constitutional convention, and they do call one. And this is, uh, we can go into other discussions. In fact, I think the first radio show I did with you was talking about constitutional conventions. But the Annapolis Convention is held, and Hamilton writes the proposal to do another convention in Philadelphia in 1787 is when the second constitutional convention is called. And after the founding fathers write the Constitution, Hamilton writes the... Manny, help us out. What are the famous, there are three people who write them. What's the name of these uh, essays that are written to support ratification of the Constitution in New York? Well, I mean, uh, they're all Federalist papers, but you want me to name the numbers? I can't do that. Okay, but so who, who, and you answered correctly. So the Federalist papers, Hamilton writes about, I think, 51 or 53 of the essays. Of the 80-something, yes. In the 80s, like 85. Yeah, 84, 85, yeah. And then John Jay, who becomes the Chief Justice, writes a bunch because he's an expert on international law. And Hamilton in Federalist Papers 22 and 78 talks about judicial review because he uses this idea from his case of Rutgers versus Waddington. And he writes about it in Federalist Papers 22 and 78. And I'm going to quote it. He talks about how the interpretation of the laws is the proper and peculiar province of the courts. So the courts get to interpret the laws. And he goes on to say that in case of a conflict, quote, the Constitution ought to be preferred to the statute. So Hamilton is putting it in black and white letters in the Federalist Papers that in a conflict, so the judges don't write the law, but if they're interpreting a statute, and if there's a conflict between a statute and the Constitution, according to Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison, I'm sorry, uh, Jay and Madison, and then the Federalist Papers, the Constitution is supreme, and it's the judges who have to make that decision. So that's one of the other things that Hamilton is up to after the war. And uh, unless you had any other questions, let me give you some more background about what's going on. No, continue, yes. All right, so I mentioned how Benjamin Franklin's son, his name is William Franklin, and about 100,000 loyalists get out of town. And another famous American is John Singleton Copley, who is a very famous painter, one of the greatest American painters. Is another example of, of loyalists who get out of town or Tories who get out of town. In fact, George Washington's mother, and I want to do some research on this, and several of Washington's cousins were Tories. And that gets to the fact that just during the Civil War you had some blue and some gray on opposite sides of the battle lines, and the American, the American Revolution was also a civil war. So uh, that tells you one of the reasons that Hamilton wants to have reconciliation, and it's not easy. Reconciliation is, is a tough thing to do. And let me give you some other quotes if you want. But uh, did we have, do we have any other questions about uh, some of the background at this time period? Well, I, I like to know if Alexander Hamilton really got rich doing uh, representing loyalists. Because that uh, kind of sounds kind of like... I don't think he got rich, but he did fine. I mean, you He know? did fine. Look, uh, see, that's classic Ed Vidal attorney. Oh, I don't charge that much, uh, you know, but I got rich. More uh, than reasonable. More than reasonable, because Adams also uh, was at that same, at that time, representing loyalists even before even uh, before and well, after the Revolution. Well, the Massacre, yeah. So let me give you some background about why I think Hamilton's a great guy. So he in his law practice, 
was not only representing wealthy loyalists, but he was also taking pro bono cases. And uh, if, also, if you go to statutesandstories.com, he founded, or I should say he co-founded, the New York Manumission Society. Manumission is a famous, or it's a, it's a hard word to pronounce, but it's a, it's a fancy way of saying abolition, except instead of abolishing slavery with one fell swoop, you gradually do it. And there are different ways that they had made recommendations to manumit slaves. So he founds the New York Manumission Society. Uh, his wife, Eliza, once he dies, founds charities for orphans in New York City. And also Hamilton is involved in providing schools for former slaves. So he has a busy law practice. But some of these law books that talk about Hamilton point out that he's not charging excessive fees and he's, he's not charging what he could have charged. But he's using litigation as a tool. And uh, some people have criticized him that if there was $10 on the floor, he wouldn't bend down to pick it up uh, because uh, you know he's more interested in defending the principles than in, than in making a profit. And when he died, and I recently have been looking at some of his papers when he died in his will, he was not a wealthy guy when he, when he passed away. In fact, the value of his books, I'll give you something very concrete, the value of his books and furniture was valued at, let's see, let's get, the right, get it right, I think it was 3,000 pounds or $3,000, yeah, so $3,000, his books and his furniture was worth $3,000, but his entire estate was worth $30,000. Think about that for a second. 10% of his entire net worth was his books and his furniture. So this is not a wealthy guy. He had a lot of, you know, he did, his, his life was dedicated to public service. And when he was the New York, when he was the Secretary of Treasury, and that's another thing the books that I mentioned talk about. They talk about what his life was, what his practice was before he becomes famous as the Secretary of Treasury, when he's just the New York lawyer and, and starts going up through the ranks of, of the New York legal bar and uh, taking on important cases. So that, that that's why I think this period in American history, the formative years before we have the Constitution, is so important, and that's why there's a lot of work that's now being done going through, and a lot of this is all digitized, and I, I make good use of it on statutesandstories.com, using Hamilton's papers and Madison's papers, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to weave together, so you're not taking my opinion on it, I'm quoting from the original sources uh, to tell the story of American history. Wow, so um, give us a preview of our next show, uh, what what monumental case? I mean, this one establishes judicial review. What other Alexander Hamilton cases establishes uh, legal precedence? You know what? I'm still doing work on that, and that, that's another excellent. Ah, question. the layman stumped the attorney. How about that? In, in future, you're right. In future, and there, there's a lot. It's a very rich field of, of material. You know, it, it um, might be that, worth. That's, that's one of the most. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it might be worth doing something on nullification and comparing that with the sanctuary uh, states and cities. So the two of you can handle the issue of sanctuary cities, but I'll okay. talk about... <laughs> That's no, gonna, it'll make us political. Yeah, right? nullification, so 1830. 1830s, yeah. and why Andrew Jackson yep. uh, was threatening to invade South Carolina, and <clears throat> when I call him redheaded, but uh, he was known as fiery. So Calhoun, who was the senator from South Carolina, and I think he may have also been a vice president at some point, yep. uh, really we almost had Americans fighting Americans in the 1830s over this issue of nullification. But under the concepts that we talked about today, that federal law is supreme, a state does not get to pick and choose what the law is when it comes to federal law. Right. Absolutely. Well, fair. That's that's uh, and you know, I, um, why don't you mention those two lectures coming up? Uh, one's tomorrow night, and the other one is on Sunday, April fourteenth. And I'm not going to be able to drive up there tomorrow night, but I'd like to meet that uh, to get in touch with that professor, Tim Dixon. So 
Tim is a good guy, and he's not only a history professor, but he's also a law professor. So he's a JD PhD. Okay. And one of these days, I almost—I'll tell you one day—I almost became a JD PhD. But um, you know, it, it's good to have, in my opinion, a lawyer who has some historical background. And it's very self-serving for me to say that because I have a history background and I'm a lawyer. Yep. And I, I think that sometimes the history is more interesting than the law. But when you weave the two together, I think that gives you a good yep. perspective. So that's what he's going to be doing. He's going to be talking about Hamilton's role as a as a you know sort of an epic heroic lifetime what Hamilton did and they were sort of broader than than the, the, the radio subject we were talking about but Hamilton's career was someone stepping up and Manny we talked about this on another night how Hamilton is is always uh, two feet ahead if there's a challenge he doesn't step away from the challenge whereas Burr is sort of sitting back in the in the you know in the weeds uh, waiting to decide if it's safe to put his foot in the water yeah one was a uh, one was a leader and the other one was an opportunist Burr was the opportunist always. Yeah, I like to. You know, you know, maybe we'd like we could get uh, Tim to. I like to to talk to him or meet him, and maybe we could get him to call in uh, separate. I need to talk to him about that and yep. ask him. Okay. But Tim is speaking Tuesday night, which is tomorrow night yep. at seven o'clock from seven yep. to eight thirty. Is that and being taped? Talking about, and I, I've heard him speak before, and he's, he's a fantastic speaker because yep. he doesn't just go into historical details; he humanizes it, right. and it's, it's such a human story to talk about Hamilton, this kid from the Caribbean who basically was an orphan. Yep. His mother dies when he's when he's a kid, and his father is nowhere to be found. Although he does later on wind up being able to write to because his father comes looking for money later. On, writes to him. Although his father is in America, his father is writing to him from uh, somewhere in the Caribbean and one of the other islands. So Hamilton, uh, you know, comes to America. Hamilton uh, creates and is involved in organizing when the war is beginning to break out. When there's the signs of early resistance, he forms a. a and he's a smart guy. He realizes that, that people don't know how to shoot cannons, but if you know the math and you can do the geometry, then that's a skill set that they needed. And Washington realized that also. So Hamilton and some of the students from at the time. What was the college where he went, Manny? King. King's College. Yeah, there you go. King's College, which later became Columbia University. So he forms a regiment, and this, um, in fact, I don't remember the name of the regiment, but it's uh, still in existence today, and it's a, it's an artillery unit dealing with cannons. And uh, he then tries to defend New York City. Uh, and you mentioned earlier, Ed, I think the Battle of Brooklyn. The British are very successful and uh, could have ended the war had they, had they pursued. They could have caught Washington, but Washington escapes, and uh, sort of Hamilton stays behind the lines, uh, shooting cannons to allow the Americans to escape. So. What is the point? The point is that from a very early age, Hamilton is a risk taker, and uh, he doesn't have that much to lose because the war is an opportunity for him uh, to do public service and to distinguish himself where or, or merit comes to the fore. And Washington is looking for people who are courageous and also who have skill sets that Washington needs. And um, you know, one of these days, I want to talk about the French Revolution because I'm doing a lot of work about the French Revolution. Uh, one of these days, I'll, I'll give you some of the posts. But what Napoleon recognizes during the French Revolution, and this is really after the French Revolution when uh, Napoleon takes over from the French directorate to become the first consul of France, declares himself emperor. But he realizes that rather than the way the British and the earlier European armies would fight is that you would have aristocrats who would call the shots. And whether or not they were good generals or not, they were the ones that were the commanding officers. But Napoleon realizes that there's a lot of talent out there who come from the farmers. And if we... Uh, 
hire people and retain people and promote them based upon merit, which is what Washington was doing, which is how Hamilton, this kid from nowhere, becomes Hamilton becomes Washington's right-hand man, the aide-de-camp, which is what Napoleon is also doing. He's, he's using a democratic army. So Washington's democratic army, which was then used by Napoleon as a democratic army, uh, is going to outcompete uh, these other armies, which are crusted and uh, are, aren't as efficient as a, as a mobilized, motivated workforce and uh, military. Unbelievable. So, but, but, uh, the and then we got total war, and a hundred years later, they were in the trenches killing each other. The, these these na national armies. Mo every every citizen. Uh, yep, that's right. I'm well, not complaining. No, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and the, the value of the cannons is the equivalent of the value of the tank. Yeah, of yeah the it, tank today. It, it's funny because you know Napoleon was from not from a, an aristocratic family, but he got an appointment to the French military academy, and there. He specialized in artillery because he was good in math. And all the other students tend to be from aristocratic families. They weren't very bright. They couldn't figure out the math, but they were, you know, dashing cavalry officers and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think Hamilton followed a similar path as Napoleon of being a, a gifted young man who saw the importance of artillery and was able to help out. Right. And it didn't just have to be artillery. What Washington was recognizing in his band of, I don't think he called it a band of brothers, that's the term that we use for World War II, but his brain trust, mm -hmm. so his circle, his family is what Washington called it, of the advisors that he promoted up the ranks. And what you would see when you read Washington's papers is that he would ask his generals and his officers for their opinions. And he wanted their honest, truthful opinion. And then he would take the different opinions. They'd sit around. Sometimes he'd get it in writing. Sometimes it would just be done oral and he would flesh out and, and hash out what the right answer, what the right strategy was. And once Washington decided, then he's the boss and he makes the decision. But that he wanted to have input and he wanted, that's the way a democratic army operated, and give Washington and Napoleon credit for that. Although I don't know how much Washington, sorry, I don't know how much Napoleon was listening to others, but at least he did have an army that uh, tried to tap into the strengths and the and the virtues of, of those that, uh, that could support it. Well, the other yeah. point I wanted to make about Hamilton which is that he was a leader in war and in peace, as was Washington. Because when we talk about Jay's treaty, and we've spent previous nights talking about the Camillus essays and reminding our viewers that if you go back to the Statutes and Stories website, you can read about the Camillus essays, and you can also listen to some of these, these recordings, these podcasts on the Statutes and Stories. How do you want to call it, Manny? The, how would you describe it on WSQF? You got me there. You stumped me. But you've got the Statutes and Stories podcast page. So well, yeah. I'm, I'm, you, on our website at wsqfradio.com, you'll see the tab, Statutes and Stories, and all these podcasts, all these uh, wonderful moments we spend with you, are li they, come, they come across as live, and they can be shared, and they can be embed. You can actually embed the script, and it'll, um, it'll uh, reappear. If you embed the script, it'll reappear on some on SoundCloud and allow uh, this podcast to be embedded in other people's sites, um, as well as statues and stories. So we're really expanding your educational reach here with the way we're um, posting your your statues and story links. 
Fantastic. So people can read about it on statutesandstories.com, and you can listen to it mm-hmm. on the Statutes and Stories podcasts on WSQF. And let me talk real briefly about the exhibit and about Jay's Treaty. And people roll their eyes when they hear me talk about Jay's Treaty, but Jay's Treaty was the biggest, most controversial issue. So today we could talk about what's controversial, and we've got all kinds of controversies. But in 1770, sorry, 1795, and in 1796, Jay's treaty was the big issue because the Democrat Republicans, and by that I mean Jefferson and Madison, they wanted to support the French and the French Revolution, and the the Federalists wanted to sort of stay out of it. They wanted to be neutral, and we've talked about this before, and Washington eventually decides and agrees with Hamilton that uh, let's make peace with the British, let's move ahead, let bygones be bygones, and we need to build our country first before we go to war again. So these guys were peacemakers. They're strong in war, but they also understood the importance of um, sometimes peaceful resolution, because they had seen firsthand how horrible war can be. Sometimes it's necessary, but sometimes you can work things out. So that's what the fight over Jay's Treaty was all about. And uh, the other point about Jay's Treaty is, and one of these nights, remind me, we'll talk about it, but some of the concepts of executive privilege, and ask me about this on another evening, the whole idea of executive privilege comes out of Washington and Hamilton in the battle over Jay's Treaty. And one of the other battles that comes up is uh, if, if, if Congress disagrees with the president about a treaty. And you don't have to look very far into today's history. You know, modern politics, we'd open up a newspaper. You've got controversies over, um, you know, when, when, when our current president, when President Trump came in, controversies over um, the treaty with Iran. There are controversies over uh, NAFTA. So that sometimes controversies can be very heated over treaties. But back then, these were the treaties. The Jay's Treaty was the big source of friction. And uh, because Madison and Jefferson did not support that treaty. What did they do? It squeaked by in the Senate by basically one vote. It may have been two votes, but basically squeaks by in the Senate. So because the Federalists controlled the Senate, what did the Democrat Republicans want to do who more or less are going to control the House at the end of Washington's administration? And the answer is they want to defund the treaty in the House of Representatives by not spending the money, which we promised the British, as part of Jay's treaty. Absolutely, the power of the purse. So these ideas of fighting, you know, the Senate, should the Senate, the Senate gets to ratify and adopt the treaty, but the House gets to decide because they control the power of the purse. Yes. So these ideas that we fight about today in the newspapers, very topical, they did not come out of nowhere. We're not, we're, we're revisiting issues that have been examined before by the framers. So, uh, anyways, I'm drawing some of the parallels, and these are all topics to be considered another night. And I look forward to further conversations with you guys. Well, thank you very much, Adam. That was thank a, you. Uh, that was a great start, and um, we've got so much to enjoy about Alexander Hamilton, and we're looking forward to more shows like this. Pleasure's all mine, and everyone have a good night. Take care. Thank you. Well. That was pretty cool. So yeah. we're we're done for the night. Uh, another yep. three hours of patriotism. Yes. Not bad for an American Cuban and a Cuban American, because after all, we we love this country probably more than most can appreciate because we have no other country to go to. That's right. We're already on our second on our second pad. Got to make it work here. So stay free, my friends. It's all it's all it's all peachy king. Take care. Um, was someone harmed because of the filing of... Attention, Patriots.